Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Cleontel podcast with me, Robin Allender. This week it's a conversation I had with bass player James Hornsey back in June, who told me all about the band's history and gave me a guided tour to the Cleontel discography. Bit of a shorter intro this time as we've got a lot of albums to get through, so please enjoy my chat with James Hornsey. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> it's no fun drinking alone. So. Mm. No. <laughs> Oh, that's nice. It takes the edge off the day, doesn't it? Yes. Definitely. How, was, um, how was your weekend? Did you see any Glastonbury? I didn't even know it was on until uh, yesterday. So <laughs> really? No, no it, it's not my thing, really, Glastonbury. Not e- really? Not even Elton? I missed Elton, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. no, not even Elton, to be honest. Uh, that's um, good. It was worth watch. Have you ever played Glastonbury? No, we don't do festivals, really. Oh, really? So. Well, not in this country. We've done a few in Canada and Spain. Yeah. Why is that, do you think? They don't invite us, I mean, mainly. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. I, I do think as a, as a quiet band, it needs to be the right kind of setting, doesn't it, for the clientele? Yeah, I'm not sure Glastonbury is that setting for us, really. So. Well, they do have such a range of music there. But I suppose I can't really see you on Saturday at Reading sort of vibe. No, maybe in one of the tents at Reading. I used to like go to Reading in the in the old days. So. Yeah, me too. I feel like it used to be a lot more interest. Well, it's still quite diverse, I suppose. But I mean, it used to be a lot more interesting musically because before All Tomorrow's Parties started and all those kinds of festivals, it seemed to attract a lot of the more interesting kind of American bands. Yeah, there was a good variety. I mean, I'm talking 1990 and 91, I think, were the two okay. years I went there. So I was yeah. going back a bit, but there was a great lineup for both of those years, I seem to remember. So, Did you see Nirvana that year? 91? I think I was watching probably Fatima Mansions or somebody oh, in, no. in the tent. Uh, yeah. No regrets there. So. <laughs> no regrets. No. <laughs> well, yeah, I missed uh, Neil Young one year at Glastonbury because I was watching Animal Collective. But um, yeah, no regrets. Um <laughs> Yeah, but I remember seeing, like, you know, Yola Tango, Quasi Smog, you know, Flaming Lips, Elliot Smith. I missed Elliot Smith when, when I was at Reading, but it was, it seemed to be very good when I was, when I was, when I was younger. <laughs> yeah. These things are always good when you're younger. Yeah. So I wondered if we could start by just talking a bit more about when the band first got together. And we were going to go through the albums, but... One of the albums, which isn't really kind of a studio album, but it's a collection of demos, is It's Art, Dad. And could you talk a bit about that, How the, what, what those songs are and what they represent? So they represent really the first five, six years of the band, I suppose. I mean, there was, there's a prehistory to the band before I joined, um, which I'm not at liberty to speak about. So, oh, really? um, But um, I joined in January 91 and... These recordings pretty much, I think, date... I've got it here, look. Oh, these, great. They actually listened to it today for the first time in probably about a decade, and uh, right. it stands up rather well, I think. It so, does. Um, considering how young we were. Yeah, how young, how young were you? So, 16 when the first earliest songs on here were written, at least. So, so I guess 16 through to 21. So, um, But yeah, two of the songs on that made it onto the record were actually on the tape that Al gave me um, of songs 
to see if I wanted to be in the band and on the bus he gave me a tape and uh yeah I'm sure there's other ones on that tape that should have made it onto its art dad as well but there you go we recorded a lot of stuff in those days we used to record every practice and right but they sound they sound really good though I mean you can tell obviously they're four track recordings but they they're nicely balanced yeah my brother recorded them all um my uncle had a four track um that he wasn't using and my brother kind of borrowed it long term I think he still has it now um and uh yeah he used to come over once every few months and record some songs um and the quality wasn't that bad we had some pretty rudimentary gear but um as good as you could get from a four track really because we had to bounce the the bass and the drums onto one track so you lost a lot of quality there immediately but um but yeah well that's what that's what the beatles did so exactly (laughs) maybe not on cassette but yeah (laughs) So did you record them live? Uh, no, it would have been drums and guitar and bass, or mm. in what some or and probably drums then bass. I imagine I can't remember now; it's a long right. time ago. But yeah, we didn't have enough microphones to record it live. I don't think so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Those limitations are good, though. Sometimes, yeah. And um, who was in the band before you joined? Then Alistair Innes and Dan. Um, I think there'd been various other temporary members before that. Um, but yeah, that was the lineup when I joined, and that's the lineup with me on these recordings. So, um, and which is it's quite an important record really because it, it has the lineup. It's the only record we've got with the lineup with two singer songwriters. So yeah. Um, so I kind of imagined. I think we all did the band panning out a bit like the Go Betweens with two strong songwriters and kind of six songs of each on a record. But it was clear that I was writing a lot more songs than Ennis was after a while, so that, that wasn't gonna, quite going to work like that. In the end, Ennis did his own thing. But like the, for this period, it's really nice to have those songs captured together on, on the record. Was Ennis playing guitar? Ennis was playing acoustic guitar, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that, the contrast between the two songwriters on that album, because there are similarities, but they're also very different. I think Graven Wood... It's an Innis song, mm. and it's it's slightly darker, isn't it? And it, I think there's a bit of delayed guitar on it, which I don't think is. They did have a, del- a delay pedal, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's on any other clientele song. I could be wrong. Possibly not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so was it was it all amicable when Innis left the band? Um, or do you not want to talk about it? <laughs> amicable-ish. Yeah, yeah. I think it's amicable now. We but we did another record with him after after he left the band as the relict which we'll come to later probably yeah, because yeah, yeah. I, I consider that one of the records in the clientele's history really so um but yeah no it, it was just got to the point where yeah i was having a very productive period writing a lot of songs which would end up on suburban light and and this wasn't writing so many so it just kind of made sense to become two bands really so did it work better as a three-piece as well, do you think? Or? It, I think live it probably did, yeah. It pushed us as, as musicians to, to work better together. And, um, yeah, I'm trying to think it would have been Howard drumming at that point, not for very long afterwards. But, um, and, yeah, we'll come to Howard later as well, I suspect. I'm getting, the chronology's going already. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so that's a long time ago now. Yeah. Yeah. So was Innes, were Innes and Alistair close friends from school? Was that how they met? Yeah, best mm-hmm. friends at school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, since the age of six or something, I think so. And when you were handed that tape on the bus and you listened to it, were you struck by the level of the songwriting? I, I was uh, blown away by it at the time, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, because as I said in the previous one, I was in a band with no songs. And <laughs> just being in a band for the sake of being in a band, not thinking that anything could come of it, really, or that we could do anything with it. But when I heard the songs on the tape, um, it, they seemed as strong as a lot of the bands I was listening to at the time, really. So I was like, OK, we could actually make something of this. Uh, I was just clearly some talent there so and i mean as i say two of those songs are on it's art dad so Mm. yeah it's just incredible level of sophistication considering how young you all were yeah and the other thing as well is it it doesn't seem to be affected by trends and things like that i mean most most people when they're in bands when they're teenagers they want to be kind of Metallica one minute and was you know I wanted to be I wanted to sound like Mogwai one minute and then kind of wanted to sound like I don't know the Beastie Boys the next or something you know because you're listening to such a range of music but it, yeah. it seems like already Alistair had a very specific vision about the songs he was writing I, th- I think we yeah Alistair and I particularly probably had already kind of fully formed our tastes in music at one potential possibly not fully formed but they were pretty defined by that point so yeah early start really i guess so so i kind of got interested i think it was about 12 13 when i kind of discovered music that still interests me now so um so by the time i met them four years on i was pretty well versed in what was going on so and it was right up my street this music on that tape i was like okay i really it sounds like the chills or galaxy 100 or something and i was like yeah so was that the kind of music you were listening to is the kind of new zealand stuff and american indie yeah the, a lot of new zealand and australian things I, I kind of discovered the new zealand stuff 88 89 i think and that kind of blew me away actually the, there was a compilation flying on compilation in love with these times which just every song on it was just incredible really so um and it just was so much more interesting to me than the stuff that was happening in this country at the times so yeah we would go and rehearse every sunday in the afternoon in the attic of a thatched cottage in dogmansfield which was in his house so um and his dad would his poor long-suffering father and mother to be honest every sunday ruined by us kind of making a racket in the in their roof but um but he would bang on the ceiling and tell us to turn it down and it's art dad was one of innes's <laughs> responses to that so um hence the title so that's nice i can't imagine you being loud enough to create a disturbance like that oh you'd be surprised there were a lot of noisier songs at the time actually that didn't make it onto the cd but well, i think even on some of the later tracks there's stuff that where you can definitely hear that galaxy 500 influence with slightly more wigging out kind of vibe yeah there's a bit of wigging out every yeah. now and then <laughs> yeah great so you were practicing and recording every sunday yeah sunday we would just record onto a little boom box and um 
we've got bags of tapes of all these old sessions somewhere. Um, and then every now and then when my brother was around, because he was at university, he would come and record us. Um, we did a handful of gigs at that period, I think. We, we played two gigs at our sixth form college um, and the kind of Battle of the Bands thing. Um, yeah, not very successful. And then, <laughs> You're shaking your head. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Who won the Battle of the Bands, was it? It wasn't us, I don't oh, think. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> and we played... Uh, we actually played in Reading with uh, my brother's band, who at the time, the drummer of that band was Mark, who... Mm. Uh, later ended up joining the clientele but he didn't watch us he was in a pub down the road so um yeah what did you do with the tapes once your brother had recorded them he's probably got them all still i think we went back into the studio when we were putting the cd together and went through them all one by one so see if there was anything else there was lots of other stuff but um this was the the cream of it really so right But at the time, were you sending them off to labels or was it, were you just doing it for its own sake kind of thing? Just doing it for its own sake at that point. Um, we were all, well, for the first couple of years, we were at sixth form and too young to think beyond doing that. And then university, so we weren't really in a position to do much with them. So we were just doing it for ourselves. Um, and at university, did you, you were you staying in touch? Was the band still a going concern or did you do other things, other musical projects? Um, so... I think after Al's first year at university, he came back and announced that the clientele had stood up and he'd found cooler people in Edinburgh to play with. So uh, so that was that. And then I think he realised that they might look cooler, but they didn't really have, they couldn't play. So the next holiday he came back and uh, suggested we get back together again. So, <laughs> so I didn't do anything else at university musically at all. I didn't really meet anybody interesting to play with. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. We we kind of had that formative experience that a lot of people have at university at sixth form age. I think we mm. kind of f- fell in with the right crowd at that point. It was, um, and yeah, so every holiday we would come back and play, get together, and yeah, it was good. Where where did you go to university then? I was in Liverpool. Um, yeah, Dan was in Manchester. Out in Edinburgh, Innes and Stirling, I think. So. Right. So it's interesting that you all went to these quite interesting places and then found it as more musically inspiring back in uh, Fleet. Back in Fleet, <laughs> yeah, you see. Yeah. It is an interesting one, would you think? Uh, Liverpool would have been... I, I went to Liverpool because it was had such a rich musical history mm. and I, I had offers from, uh, I think, Liverpool and Leeds and I couldn't think of any bands I liked from Leeds. So right. I probably was forgetting the Mekons at that time. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, there was no music happening of any interest to me at that point. It was just a club scene, which I didn't really, I, yeah, it didn't do much for me. Cream and things like that. So all the bands seemed to have stopped playing. And you mentioned not seeing Nirvana at Reading. So did that whole scene pass you by as well? You weren't interested in the heavier kind of stuff? Not that particular, what became known as grunge, I guess. Uh, No, that didn't interest me at all. It was too metal for me. Right. I did like a lot of noisier stuff, but, um, but not, not like that. My best friend at school was hugely into that kind of stuff, so I heard a lot of it, but um, but it left me cold on the whole. Yeah. So. I just find it amazing when I speak to you that you all found each other because you all seem so unique and you have such a singular way of thinking about music, I think. 
yeah, it, was, it wasn't very fully formed at that point, I guess, but, like, um, but yeah. What's Dan doing now, the, the first drummer? Oh, he's back on the new album, so... Oh, um, yeah, of course, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, he, he, Dan always didn't see music as a career, I think. Mm. He, he was the clever one and uh, ended up studying and uh, he, he's doing some very high-powered job now, I'm sure, so, yeah. He, he made the right decision. <laughs> yeah. We should have listened to him. No. As, a, as well as the It's Art Dad stuff, there's a, another session that we did which got released as like a download with the Best Of album um, from the same period. And Dan's not playing on it because he had revision to do for his um, science exams. So uh, we had to get another drummer because we booked in a session with my brother and uh, we had no drummer. So, so we got the drummer from my old band to come and uh, play and he was pretty competent right. picked up all the songs quickly so yeah. but yeah so that was we knew then we're not going to hold on to Dan yeah. so. <laughs> and who was the next drummer then so Howard Monk played with you next um, so yeah Dan left went to Australia which is where Innis is now right yes yeah. uh, we put an advert in the Melody Maker and one person responded as I recall and that was Howard so we had an audition. We were living in Fleet still at the time, but we went all went up to a rehearsal studio in London and he turned up, which was good. So, And he was a really good drummer. So um, a, a real interesting experience playing with Howard because he was much more professional than we were at the time, I think. so. And he kind of pushed us to learn to play our instruments properly and we became quite a tight live band under, under that, well, in that time with Howard. So... But it didn't last very long because he was also playing in Billy Mahoney, a kind of post-rock band, and they were assigned to Pure. And uh, it looked for a brief period that they were going to be the next big thing, and he decided he didn't want to be in the clientele at the same time, which is fair enough. So he moved on, at which point we'd already parted ways of Innis, so it was just me and Al at that point. And, uh, yeah... We were at a bit of a loss, really, what to do. So, um, to the point we were thinking of just chucking it in. Um, but then, luckily, I bumped into a housemate of Mark's in the pub in Crouch End, and I suddenly had a light bulb moment. I thought, Mark can do it because we had a US tour lined up by that point. But really? And like, which was quite a good carrot to dangle yeah. in front of potential drummers. Mark had little interest in our music, I think, at that time, but the thought of a trip to New York was enough to convince him, I think. Yeah. He didn't want to at first. He's like, I've retired. I'm not playing drums anymore. So, <laughs> yeah. so we're, we're, we're skipping ahead from here, from to, to making tapes to... We've missed our suburban light. Yeah, now. yeah. <laughs> so let's go back to, so maybe after university. You... Yeah, so that's quite, fits quite neatly into suburban light, I think. Um, again, we bought a eight track. So, um, that would have been about 96, I think. And Al quickly mastered it in terms of recording, getting the best we could out of it with the equipment we had. And 
he would just be up in, in his attic recording all the time. He had so many songs at that period. And um, and most of those would end up on Suburban Light. So um, this would have been 96, 97, I guess, we were recording those. And at this point, we did decide, okay, it's time to start sending this music out to people. So we were we sent it to various labels and to various venues in London, not really knowing how these things worked, but we got a few responses. We got a rejection letter from Sub Pop, I seem to recall, which is better than no letter. Yeah. So, um, and they did actually offer us a deal a few years later, but yeah. Wow. Um, we went with Merge anyway. Um, well, we got a response from Andy McLeod, who subsequently became our manager. He loved the tape and offered us some gigs, put us on a few places. So, so we, started launching ourselves onto the London scene, expecting very quickly to become famous, I think. Yeah. Hmm. But it didn't happen. What were those first gigs like? Were they... Well, the first one was really busy because all of our friends came. Yeah. And, uh, and then we thought this is going to be like this every time, but they only <laughs> come to the first one, I've noticed. So that... Yeah, we played on some strange bills with bands that I can't really remember anymore. Um to nobody uh but they were a good learning experience yeah and this is really getting into Britpop time now as well so yeah yeah people weren't really interested in what we were offering but you found some labels to start putting out seven inches yeah i'm trying to think what so the first one came out on andy's label so our manager's label which we found was the kind of okay we've not got anyone to release this so Andy can do it so which we did with the first few albums as well so in the UK um so yeah a lot of the songs that ended up on Suburban Light were seven inches first because and we did one in Spain with Elephant Records which came back with a cover which is one we would not have chosen ourselves and then similarly the there was a Japanese one on Motorway Records which it looked like it had a picture of Kurt Cobain in a vest on the back of it. Uh, I, I don't know why they would do that, but so we were busy sticking um, pictures of us over the top of that on right. some of them. So, but, yeah, very strange. And then Julian, a friend of ours, released all the dust and glass, which had reflections after Jane on it on a seven inch, which seemed to be the one that got noticed um, finally. So got us the attention in the US. Did you have a following for those seven inches in the UK or was it only when it got to America that that kind of really kicked off? I think it was only when it got to America. I don't think... I mean, Andy was putting us on interesting bills by this point to try and garner interest and the music press would turn up. But they didn't really... We got the odd review, but nothing much in those days. So, yeah, it was only once the US thing kicked off. We did a 10-inch with March records of like four songs from that era, which subsequently we couldn't put on the US version of Suburban Light because he wouldn't give up the licensing on them or whatever. So so they had a different version of Suburban Light in the US for 20 years. And then, yeah. Uh, it was only since the reissue in 2014. Though. Yeah, we reverted back to the UK track listing, I think, on that one. So, And then stuck the other songs on a bonus CD. So. But but all the Suburban Light songs were recorded on 8-track? Most of them. I think this, uh, Monday's Rain was in a studio just around the corner from my house now, which is shut down now, sadly. But I, um, 
well, not sadly, really, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, we recorded maybe three songs there, I think, but only that one got released. I think so that was our first studio song. Um, but yeah, the rest of it's all eight track. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful record. I, st- I love it so much. Um, and so it was on the strength of that that Merge offered you this US tour, or had the album come out? No, the US tour was before Suburban Light. It was just off the back of some seven inches. Um, I forget who organised it, really, but I guess March Records would have had a hand in it. Certainly they were driving us about a bit. Yeah, we just played a little East Coast jaunt from Boston down to DC, I think. Yeah, and we met a lot of people that we're still friends with on that trip, which was nice. So that, uh, we played in New York with the Ladybug Transistor, which was a really good show. Um, we played in DC and got just uh, this full page review. I think we may have talked about this in the previous one, but like, like an absolute character assassination in the Washington Post. It was, or some, yeah, I think it was the Washington Post. So that's what we brought back to London with us. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, didn't stop us though. No, but those <laughs> reviews can really hit hard, can't they? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, this one was just quite funny, really, the, <laughs> to go to such a length to yeah. demolish a band that only released a seven-inch single. Isn't <laughs> <it>? <laughs> uh, Why do you think that was? You, again, is it because you were quite out of step with what was going on at the time? Do you think that was part of it? No idea. No, no idea. No, no idea just personal vendetta. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, didn't like the way I didn't tuck my shirt in. That was all I remember. <laughs> But, I mean, aside from that review, that must have been incredibly exciting going to the States for the first time. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Um, yeah, to play in front of audiences who knew a few of our songs as well was pretty amazing. So, um, And were genuinely interested as well. So, yeah, an, an eye-opener for us. So. so Merge came in after after March had done that initial 10-inch and then we quickly went back again to do a tour coast to coast that time supporting Suburban Light so first of many yeah Suburban Light seems to have really taken on a life of its own it seems to be it does I I don't know it puzzles me I mean I I listen to it and I hear a band still in formation really and like I think we've done much more interesting things since I think our songwriting on it is incredible it's a really rich bunch of songs um, from a key part of his life I guess so from that perspective I I get why people love it so much. But in terms of us, our performances as a band, we were still fairly incompetent at that point. And we were recording through an eight track, which doesn't really capture the dynamics of the band as well. I, mean, we, I think Al did as good a job as you can do with an eight track recording us. But um, What's your favourite song on Suburban Light? Oh, let me just, I've got all the records here, actually. I'll just have a quick look. I'm not going to say reflections after Jane because everyone would say that. Yeah. I think bicycles for me actually. I've got bicycles for my fave. Have you? Yeah. Ah, well, there you go. I love that song. It's something about that chord change in the 1978 bit. Yeah. Very yeah. beautiful. Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, it's so unexpected. I remember one Sunday. Yeah. 
really wanted to try and capture a bit more of a live dynamic at that point. So, so we started going into various studios, of which Station Studios here in New Southgate was the first one. And then we went to one in Muswell Hill, run by a member of Galliano. Mm. And we were playing in this, this really hot summer's day and the studio was in an attic and it was just unbearable. So we didn't get anything out of that session at all. It was usable. And then we went off to Kent and recorded in. I think we talked about this as well. Moving on to the Violet Hour. Yeah, well, this was in between, in between Suburban yeah. Light and Violet Hour. So um, I was looking at the sleeve notes to the Lost Weekend EP, which we did before the Violet Hour. And it does mention something on that is recorded in Kent. So we did get something out of it. I've no idea what. but um, um, So, yeah, that was the first record we did with Mark the last weekend right um just i think still on the eight track as i recall yeah but that's a great ep north school drives a really good song yeah it's got three really good songs and some instrumental bits yeah they kind of got lost those songs a bit we couldn't really play them live at the time very well so and there's some nice field recording as well on that that ep as well isn't there yeah it's kind of paved the way for those things later on mark's first piano piece as well Mm. so. so we went from doing that pretty quickly to working on the Violet Hour, mm. doing sessions in Mark's basement. He had a house in Finsbury Park and he lived in the basement and had a pool table. So the studio was kind of spread around the corners of the room around the pool table because <laughs> the pool table couldn't come up, obviously. So yeah. it became an important part of those sessions, I think. So. Important part of the sound. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, so we were recording Violet Hour and the Relict album at the same time. I think we did Tuesdays and Thursdays, clientele and at the weekend dinners um, right. for the relics. So, and yeah, it's got Al and me and a bunch of other people playing on on that record and Mark drumming as well. So it's it's really a clientele album as much as the others really. Yeah. Except Innes is writing all the songs. So, um, it's it's really beautiful because it sounds very different from the Violet Hour. Violet Hour's kind of submerged in this reverby haze, whereas Tomorrow is again. I was producing the Violet Hour and Mark was producing the uh, Relict albums, different styles, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it is different. It's got a very different sound, actually. Yeah, Yeah, but brilliant songs. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame that Ennis hasn't really written any since, I don't think, or if he has, we've not heard them. So we did play with him about 10 years ago for Al's birthday, he came over from Australia and we got the original lineup back together. Oh, nice. And did a show at his party, which was good. Yeah. And, uh, and it, yeah, it came together as if we'd never stopped playing them, really. So it was nice. found an interview with Innes from 2006 where he said truth be told the clientele formed pretty much the nucleus of the relict sorry the relict <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce it either oh really <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've grown up with the guys so yeah we are pretty close and hang out a lot by which I mean one day we will probably kill each other <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought that was quite fun that's why he had to go to Australia yeah. so. <laughs> so when you did get round to the violet hour then you mentioned this, we talked about this in the first episode, but you were using a 16-track for this one. Yeah, we um, drove down to South London and bought 
a 16 track from some guy who was a I can't remember what band he was in now but D-Ream or something I don't know but like um, D-Ream was that a band <laughs> they did well what you did things can only get better maybe maybe, oh, maybe it was somebody else yeah. anyway <laughs> um, we bought this 16 track and probably dropped it on the floor outside his house so um got it back and it didn't work so we had to buy another one uh, oh no so, so, but we got the same one so we'd have parts at least so, right 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 um and we got it working yeah uh it wasn't so easy to get a good sound i guess as the eight track it had more things you could do with it and so mm. we had a desk and various effects units by this point so but was it still it was it still to cassette the 16 track no it was um Quarter, half inch, quarter inch, half inch tape. Right. I think. Yeah. Because around this time, sort of early noughties, it became a lot easier to do home digital recording. Nobody told us. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't out of an aesthetic, it was just because. That's no, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we liked the idea of recording onto tape. Mm. And the next album was also recorded onto tape. Mm. But bigger tape. Bigger tape, yeah. So, yeah. Violet Hours, are, it's got such a unique atmosphere, I think. It's, it stands out from all the other albums, I think. It does. It's one of my favourites. and um, didn't listen to it for a long time after we recorded it because uh, at the time I was aware that it wasn't quite the step forward we were looking for sonically. Mm. Um, but then once I got over that, I listened back to it and I was like, no, this is perfect. It's, um, it's really got a kind of cohesive atmosphere throughout the whole record and Great songs as well. Great songs, yeah. And it, it does have those noisier elements. Porcelain has got that quite rocking riff. Yeah. Yeah, Porcelain was um, one we did much earlier originally, I think, in the um, Suburban Light time, but we didn't quite get it right at that point. But I, that that one for me was really important when I first Al handed me the tape for that. I was like, wow, this is a step forward in songwriting because it's got so many different parts to it and just seems to go very, very angular and just goes off in different directions, but just hangs together really beautifully. And I, yeah, that was really interesting because it, it, it was a move away from the more traditional verse, chorus, middle eight structure that we'd kind of followed yeah. in a lot of old, other songs. So, um, And The House Always Wins is, has got that. I don't know why I keep mentioning Galaxy 500 today, but has got that <laughs> love. That's the, the kind of real wigging out moment, one of the longest songs you've done. Yeah, I enjoy that one live. That's, we don't do it enough because we tend to always do Lamplight as the wigging out song in the set rather than that one. But it'd be nice to mix it up a bit. And what's what's your favourite song on the Violet Hour? Oh, just refresh my memory. I think it's a tie with Voices in the Mall and Missing. I think Missing because we play that one live a lot and it, it seems to work really well. So, yeah, it's Missing. Mine is Jamaican Rum Rumba. Is it really? I love that tune. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we didn't write that one. No, so. it's an arrangement. Is it, is, it, <laughs> is, it, what, is it a sort of folky song or bluesy song? Yeah, I, I don't know where Al found it, actually, mm. but um, you'd have to ask him that one. Yeah. 
just love the sound of it. It's yeah. yeah. I think we go out of time on it and it's kind of it adds an extra kind of weirdness to it. So Right. Fish. We're not quite playing the same part of the song at one point. <laughs> That's like So moving on to 2005, Strange Geometry, it feels like this is the big leap forward production-wise. Yeah, this was our first record in a studio. So, And if my memory's correct, we demoed all these songs before on the 16 track as well. So we were pretty together when we went into the studio and we didn't have much time. So we went in, did all the tracking really quickly, so quickly that we had a bit of extra time and we... And I was like, "What well, is there anything else we could do? And I, I remember suggesting we do Can't Seem to Make Me Mine because we'd already released it as a seven-inch right. with Pam Berry singing it. But I thought it'd be nice to have that on the record, which very glad I did suggest that now because that's been our biggest earner, I think, right. ever since it got put in that film. So, yeah. And was this the first time you were working with Brian O'Shaughnessy as well? Yes, mm. yeah. So were you fans of his production work before? Uh, we I probably was unaware of what he'd done at the point. It was recommended to us that we go and meet him. Yeah. Um, again, our manager Andy had worked with him before, so we went along, had a chat. I think we played him some records that we liked, and to try and give him an idea of the production we wanted. Um, and he was, well, I can do better than that. So, um, what records did he play him? I the, I remember we took on Fire by. Galaxy 500. I keep mentioning them. I don't know. Because um, we like Kramer's kind of use of reverb and stuff on that. So well, It must have been a good uh, working relationship because you're still working with him now, or on the last record at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's been good over the years. We've, uh, I think we're, we're always looking to try something else, mm. go somewhere different. But in London, we're kind of limited in our options. And, um, and, and Brian knows what we're looking for. So, yeah. So, yeah, we've worked with him on four of them, I think. So. Yeah. Maybe more. Who knows? And favourite song on Strange Geometry? Strange Geometry. Ooh. It's probably Losing Haringey, I think. Mm. But, um, there's a lot to choose from there, though. Yeah. So. Amazing songs. K is a wonderful little song. Yeah. Um, I spoke a bit to Alistair about, about Losing Haringey. It seems to have a, a real following doesn't it? It seems to be a really special song for a lot of people. Yeah, for me as well, I think mm. so. Uh, yeah, it's a bit, a bit of magic happened there, I think. Yeah. So. You must have known Alistair kind of writes as well. I mean, he's such a creative person and, and, and paints and draws as well. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yes. Yeah. I don't, that was probably the first time I'd actually heard any of his writing. Right. Really. So we were just sitting there in the studio while he was reading it. And went, wow, okay, that's going to be. This is going to really work. So, and it was just done in one take, I think, pretty much. So, it's amazingly done, isn't it? And because it's the story which starts off, and it's very relatable. You know, you, it's a hot day, and you just want to go out, and you don't know if you're going to go to the pub. But then this magical thing happens. Mm. So it's interesting, you know that people do have this special relationship with it because at its core it's so enigmatic, you know. 
Well, maybe that's why you, you do have that relationship with it. I suppose that's why I do, yeah. Yeah. Well, we all had experiences like that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Happens all the time. You end up in a photo. <laughs> I looked up and I realised I was sitting in a photograph. I remembered clearly this photograph was taken by my mother in 1982 outside our front garden in Hampshire. It was slightly underexposed. I was still sitting on the bench, but the colours and the planes of the road and horizon had become the photo. If I looked hard, I could see the lines of the window ledge in the original photograph. Oh yeah, I love EMPTY. Yeah, we still play that one live. Yeah. Well, so. Sometimes find myself muttering that to myself. <laughs> 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 handy, handy little slogan. But I love uh, since K got over me is probably my favourite song on the album. Yeah, um, and I think I think it's the first Cleontel song I ever heard. Yeah, just brilliant classic songwriting, just amazing song. And you played that first when I saw you last year in London. Is that often the opener of your set? Yeah, mm. yeah, it's a quite a good one to start with. Yeah, I'd forgotten we did that. Yeah, yeah. I always um, wonder if the. You know, the do, 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 do. Well, I think I mentioned uh, there was a bit that Al asked me to play a specific bass line. And right. that is the, the, you just mentioned the yeah. exact bit there. So he wanted me to quote that. Ah. That. And then he kissed me, isn't it? Yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I'm sure I was doing something far more interesting, but... <laughs> It works so well, though. It's great. It's just like a little snapshot of something else. But it's, it's also a lot faster than a lot of other Cleontel songs. We've done some pretty fast versions of it. It depends how much Mark's had to drink <laughs> in the night, really. Yeah. So, yeah, we have a problem that all of our songs are mid-paced. Well, it's not, so. not a problem, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, that takes us on to God Save the Cleontel, because that's got quite a few up-tempo songs on. Yeah, I think Al was consciously trying to write hits mm. on that one. Yeah, it's a strange album. It's got some of our best songs on it, I think, but best recordings. But I mean, this has a whole, you know, interesting production story because it was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee. So, how did that come about? Well, we were touring. We've been on the tour for five weeks and. We thought it'd be a good idea to record it at the end of a tour when you're really tight as a band. And uh, it was a terrible idea, really, because we were just exhausted and sick of each other's company by that point, I think. So, um, so yeah, we went to Marky Never's studio in Nashville where Lamb Chop had recorded all their records and we'd always really liked how they sounded. So, yeah, it was we were there two or three weeks, I think, recording. And it was probably at that point, we kind of lost our way a little bit. I think as a live band, we were just enjoying the touring a bit too much and drinking and not the, the listening back to recordings of the tour that preceded that. Like we didn't sound very tight and uh, I don't know. Um, and it's less cohesive as an album, I think, than the other ones that preceded it. Um, there was nothing to do in Nashville other than go out to bars at the end of the day of recording as well. So it just continues like that for another few weeks and um we were staying in a motel somewhere miles from anywhere um so we had to just drive get taxis all across town the whole album cost us a fortune with the accommodation the studio and then we had to mix it 
and we left it in Marky's hands to mix, but we weren't really happy with the results when they came through to us in London a few weeks afterwards and um, decided to take it to Brian's and, and mix it ourselves. I think it would have been great to have been there with Marky mixing it. I think we could have got something really good, but um, that wasn't an option to fly back. So, so we just took it to Brian mm. and managed to get an album out of it, I think. So... It's, Al's always been annoyed at the the sequencing of the songs on that. I think it's not quite right, but it doesn't seem to work as an album so well as the other ones. But as I say, it's got some really nice songs that I like a lot on it. So. And it's got what should have been our big hit, really, but it wasn't to be. So. Which is? Uh, Bookshop Casanova, I think. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a belter. It was, it's a great song. Yeah, we're supposed to get a proper single release and... Never. It just got a digital only release, which meant nothing at that time. So that now, now that's all singles are is digital only. But like, so it was a bit frustrating, really. So right. made a video for it and everything. But mm. and was this the first album with uh, Mel Dracy playing on it? Yeah, she was joined us maybe six months before, and so she was playing live of us on that tour and came to Nashville. She's not on the album a huge amount because. The songs had already been worked out before she joined in a lot of cases. And yeah, she didn't have parts for those because we weren't playing them on the tour. So it was a little frustrating for her, I think. Um, but Pat Sansone from Wilco and the Autumn Defence came came along to add some piano. He had hundreds of parts for every song and <laughs> just recorded a lot of stuff. But um not all of it made it onto the final record, but that's a really nice kind of different quality to the music than we'd had on previous ones. So. Yeah. I mean, it's a great sounding record. I mean, it doesn't sound in any way country, which obviously wasn't the intention. But, um, no, it wasn't. We just liked the way Lamb Chop sounds yeah. in the studio. And we'll, yeah. There is some lap steel on there, though, isn't there? At some point? There is yeah. it's a bit of lap steel. They had in the studio, there was like a phone book, yellow pages sort of thing, just of session musicians from Nashville wow. we could call up and Marky asked us do you want anyone to play on this record and uh, or do you any, any extra instruments so I was like yeah lap steel or pedal steel yeah, um, yeah. and uh, and we went to the pedal steel page and I was like this he goes this guy's good and we got got him to play and he did, came in played three songs one take on each one we kind of listen first get an idea of what he was supposed to be doing and then Bang, 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 wow! Done. Yeah, it was a, a lesson. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it was great fun being in Nashville. Yeah, went to the music hall of fame and the, the zoo. That was a good day yeah. out. So, um, did you ever did you ever get over to Memphis when you were around there? We played in Memphis mm. once on a different tour, but um, and then we went to um, Ardent Studios. Um, where Big Star recorded. We got a guided tour from John Fry, the guy who recorded, and uh, it was great, a really amazing place. We would have loved to have gone and recorded there ourselves, but it's probably out of our budget, I suspect. Yeah. We were already in a lot of debt by this point from <laughs> the previous one, so, um, so yeah, it wasn't to be, but it was a great place to go and have a look around. So. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, do, I think with this album... I, I've just got a note here that which is just a gut feeling, and it's not something that's particularly 
evident in the music, but it feels a bit like this is the one where you lost your minds a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think we had lost them a little bit by yeah on that tour. Yeah. We, we were touring a lot at that point. Yeah, we'd done back to back tours of the US with a Australia, New Zealand one in the middle, and, and some Spanish festivals as well looped in as well. It was just three months more or less just away from home and playing. And for us, that was a lot. And you can kind of hear it. Yeah. I think that that was recorded at the end of that period. So like, um, yeah, we were unraveling a little bit, I think. <laughs> and um, at this period in around 2007, were you still getting much bigger audiences in the States than in the UK? Was it starting to build in the UK then as well? Mm, probably still bigger in the US, I think, at that point. Yeah. Yeah, most of our focus was on the US. We were doing support slots with bigger bands in the US as well, which was proved to be a pointless exercise, really. Uh, really? Yeah, not much fun. Who, uh, who were you supporting? We did a tour with Spoon, mm. um, who were just breaking into the big time over there. Um, and as a result, they were getting quite mainstream audiences coming to see them and that they weren't really big fans of what we were doing. So, so that just became another excuse to drink every night, really. Uh, mm. I think Al wasn't enjoying that one so much. Yeah, he, was, he would introduce the band as Alf Tompkinson's Bicycle Party every night instead of the clientele. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, that was how seriously he was taking it, I think. Right. So, um, and we did another one with... Peter, Bjorn and John, again, another grueling five, six week slog around the US. And again, their audiences weren't interested in us. So I think we learned pretty quickly not to do anymore. Right. And how did Alistair introduce themselves on that? On that, Probably the same, I expect. So, yeah. Charles Hawtrey and the Deaf Aids kind of. <laughs> <laughs> that, that name should have stuck, I think. Yeah. We should have actually changed our name to Half Tompkinson's Bicycle Party. <laughs> well, you could have done that... Um... Was it uh, XTC that released a whole series of albums under a different name? Wasn't it? it did in the Dukes of Stratosphere. That's right. Then, yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. But could have done that. Yeah. So we even had different individual names really? as well for that tour. Yeah. I was um, Barry Lasagna, <laughs> and Mark was Police Constable Dick Cock. So, right. Um, <laughs> that was the level. Of, yeah. Things were things were yeah. beginning to disintegrate. <laughs> there they were, really. To be honest. So. Yeah. That's funny. I think I meant deteriorate there, but uh, maybe things were disintegrating too. You talked about doing support tours there, but you've had quite a distinguished list of bands who supported you over the years as well in America, haven't you? Yeah, um, quite a few bands have got on to bigger things than supporting us. So, um, Beach House and Fleet Foxes being two of the bigger ones. But um, well, whatever happened to them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, and um, fans as well. Am I right in saying War on Drugs? Those guys were big fans. They invited us to play with them actually in London, but we were unable to do it at right. the time. So, yeah, Ali Pali, which would have been ideal because it's just down the road. So <laughs> could have got the train to the gig. Yeah. Um, Jeff Mangum was a fan as well, isn't he? Uh, not sure. Is oh. he? Maybe we met him. We hung out with him for a bit in Montreal. Mm. Because our tour manager's good friends with him. Right. And uh, that was fun. Yeah. He took us record shopping and, uh, yeah, we discovered lots of really good Greek, Robotica stuff, which was 
something I'd heard before and really loved, but I didn't know what it was because I hadn't been paying attention on the radio when it was played. And he bought a Rebetica CD in, in this record shop and we were listening to it in the car and I was like, this is it. This is what I was looking for. So, so that was a really good discovery. So. Wow. One thing I didn't mention about the God Save the Clientele recordings was we were, the studio was next door to Dolly Parton's offices right. and uh, there was a gap in the fence that if you looked through you could see into the garden and so I think Mel and I were looking one day to see if we could catch a glimpse of Dolly Parton and she came to the door a delivery came in so that was uh, quite exciting <laughs> wow so. that's nice probably not something I should be admitting to <laughs> you spied on Dolly Parton yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's very exciting um, yeah. and favourite song on God Save the Cleontel um I am going to have to refer to this one because I haven't listened to that in a long time. Brighton Beach is a good one, isn't it? And these days, nothing but sunshine, probably my favourite. Dreams of Leaving is a lovely one. Yeah, some beautiful songs, isn't it? Queen, Queen of Seville is my, my favourite one. It's got a lovely atmosphere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that record cost a lot of money to make. Right. And, um, it took us a long time to pay it off. Really? Yeah. It's only once we stopped playing that we ever went into profit, so... <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about Bonfires on the Heath, 2009. Yeah, so this one was the first one with Mel more involved. Mm. Why did you decide to bring an extra person into the band? I think after Strange Geometry, Al thought we'd kind of achieved what we could achieve with that lineup, and just wanted to bring something else in to mix things up a bit. And did you? How did you know Mel? I think she'd written to the band and just said she liked the music. And we were just like, okay, come along and have a rehearsal. Mm. Um, and we went to the pub. And I think by the end of the night, we'd offered her the job. So, <laughs> like, and, was she, and was she playing violin live or was she playing other instruments as well? Violin, piano, a bit of backing vocals. Mm. So, yeah, we worked quite hard to get her on this record more. Um, she worked out some really nice parts. Al took a bit of a back seat on this one in the studio, just let us kind of finish it after the initial tracking was done, his parts were done. So it was a bit of a combined effort from Mark and myself kind of getting it over the line. Mm. Um, a lot of late nights working out violin parts and things. So, And there's an Innis song on it as well, Graven Wood. Yeah, yeah, which um, is one of the ones from its art, Dad. It's always been a favourite mm. of ours and mine. And I guess we thought it hadn't been done justice with those old recordings. So mm. we just did that in one take, I think, mm. in the studio. And uh, it sounded really nice. So we put it, put it on the album. There's another cover on the record as well. Of, um, I can't know what the song's called now. Tonight, I think, isn't it? Yeah. That's an Innes song as well, is it? No, that's written by a Swedish woman whose name I can't remember off the top of my pleasure. Oh, Emily Berg. Yeah. So someone we've met on tour um, in Scandinavia. And 
it was one of the songs of her band, I think, and Al liked it, so we gave that a clientele treatment as well. So, But I think it's quite notable that the two of the songs on the album aren't Al's at that point. Uh, and another one is just a kind of instrumental sketch. Yeah, I think Al's interest was waning at the time, potentially. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I think we'd just done too much yeah. stuff together. We toured so much at that period. Um, we were just exhausted, really. And doing two, an album every two years is a lot of pressure on Al to come up with songs. And you've got lives outside this. So, I mean, for a couple of years, we were doing it full time. Um, after we got a good publishing deal, we had some money to be able to do that. Um, but then there became pressure to accept gigs you wouldn't otherwise have done to get some money to keep living off the music and it wasn't really very satisfying for anyone so we went back to working again to do another record every two years in that scenario wasn't really feasible so it kind of we ran out of steam I think right at that point and now just quite understandably wanted to play with some different people I think by that point he, he was been playing with me since he was 16 and without with Mark for like a good decade so I think he just wanted to try something else yeah after Bonfires on the Heath was a mini album Minotaur so that was the same sessions right so, yeah that was outtakes yeah some of which I think could have been on the album um, oh t- absolutely yeah there's some good songs there so it doesn't quite hang together as a record in its own right, I don't think. Or it would have made a good bonus disc with like a reissue of um, of the album, maybe. But um, but people like it. I, I don't know, so. Yeah. But then, so but then after Minotaur, that's when what you're talking about happened, which is you went on hiatus. And was there a time when you thought it might be permanent? Then yeah, we went on. One tour after Minor Tour, did a few shows. It was really good fun. We had a great time. Then we came back and I think we had one rehearsal after that and started playing some of the songs that would end up on the first Amorda DS album. Um, and then it just kind of fizzled out, really. There was no, never any, I don't remember, maybe there was, but I don't remember Al ever saying, okay, I'm taking a break from this now. Mm. We just didn't, we just stopped playing. And then Al started playing with Lupe around town as Amorda DS and then they did the first album without any involvement from anyone else in the band. Mm. So it was obvious by that point, okay, we're on hiatus, whatever that means. So, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, there was a weird time for me because I just ended a, a, or a long-term relationship had just ended and my band had just ended at the same time. Um, so I was a bit, a bit lost for a while. Um, so... So I started learning Spanish instead. So right. that became my focus yeah. at that point. Um, but I mean, looking at looking at it now, I mean, it's, you made the right decision because it was for, for it was for everyone's health, really, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Mental health for sure. So physical health probably as well. Yeah. Yeah. So we didn't. The funny thing is, by that time we'd finished those the last couple of albums. We're probably sick of each other's company to some extent and weren't enjoying hanging out so much. But once we got through that and Al started doing other stuff, we ended up going back, going to the pub again, like we had mm. done in, in the early days. So it was, it was really nice actually, just kind of re- remember what was important. And, uh, and eventually we ended up playing together again. Uh, I mean, in fact, I played on the second Amor de Dias album on a number of songs. So, which was nice to 
Brilliant. Well, they're beautiful records, aren't they? They're so yeah, absolutely stunning. Yeah, I love how minimal they sound, and you know, yeah, it was it was great for me to play on Lupe songs as well on on the second album because she's got a very different writing style to Al, and at that point, I'd only ever played with Al Ninnis, and I'd never recorded with anybody else, never played on anyone else's song, and I didn't know if I could do it. So it was actually really interesting to to realise I, I, I can actually play with other people. Wow. So, um, yeah. And then shortly after that, I ended up playing with Comic Game right. as well on a couple of albums. So um, and, and again, I didn't know if I could do that because it's quite a different style again. But yeah. I seem to... Well, I kind of turned them into the clientele for a bit, I think. <laughs> My melodic bass lines, but yeah. Well, that's not a bad hiatus when you put it like that. You learnt Spanish, played on a few records, played with Comic Game. S- started learning Spanish. It took a while longer than that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I kept busy for sure. Yeah, that's so, good. Um, it was a weird, weird period there. I'm so. sure. But it's better you did that than just tried to force out another album that wouldn't have been as good. As... Exactly, yeah. yeah. But um, going back to Bonfires on the Heath, though, favourite song on that record? Bonfires on the Heath might be my favourite song. Bonfires on the Heath. Yeah. Mm. What else is on it? Yeah. Jennifer and Julia is a lovely song. Yeah. I know I'll see your face. There's lots of good songs, but yeah, Bonfires on the Heath would be my Mm. selection from that. Mine too, I think. I remember reading somewhere, did you once have a version where you just played it for, you know, like 20 minutes or something? Is that right? I hope we did. I would like to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. I don't remember. No, okay. There's lots I don't remember from that period. So that... Maybe I made it up, but I, I just love that. I love the way the song, there's so few lyrics, but it's, it's a long song. I mean, it's five minutes, but it never outstays its welcome. And you just stay in that kind of one image, you know. Mm. It's brilliant, isn't it? Beautiful. Yeah, I think that's probably my favourite recording of the band as well mm. on any record that we've done. I think we just every instrument sounds really good mm. in that. Um, yeah. Nicely mixed. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful sounding album. And Minotaur, we touched on that briefly, but The Green Man, I think, is probably my favourite spoken word song that Alistair's done, I think. Really? Interesting. Yeah. I haven't listened to that for so long. I can't remember anything about it now. So it's great. I'll have another listen later. Yeah. So. Do you have any favourites on on mine at all? I got to just grab it because again, I, <laughs> yeah, I haven't listened to this one for. Paul Verlaine's a great little pop song. I think um, nothing here is what it seems. Actually, mine at all is interesting because it's the only record where I sing. Oh really? I do backing vocals on at least one, maybe two tracks. Oh great. Um, you can barely hear them, but they're there. So. Sensitively mixed. <laughs> yes, I think that's fair to say. Oh, that's cool. Would you would you sing live? Uh, no, I can't right. live, but um, I would like to do more in the studio, maybe. I did my first karaoke last year. Oh, really? Uh, and I rather enjoyed it. She was good. So. What song did you sing? Well, I can, it turns out I can only sing Johnny Cash right. and New Order songs. They're the only ones I'm in the right register for me, so... like. Um, Mainly Johnny Cash, though. So. Okay, so you've got the kind of baritone range. Yeah, mm. yeah, it seems to work. So that's my solo direction I'll be going in. So. You should. You should do more <laughs> for Johnny Cash's New Order crossover. Yeah. <laughs> that's what the world needs, yeah. isn't it? So. 
But um, I just noticed Jerry's on Minor Talk, which is a, one of my favourites. I think that's a great song. We should. It was from much earlier. Um, in fact, it was from before Violet Hour, I think. Um, and we tried to record it at that period and had this wonderful string arrangement that one of our sister's friends had written for us and recorded it. And then the guy who recorded it decided it wasn't good quality enough or something or we needed the tracks for something else and recorded over it. Oh, no. So we have this very rough mix, um, but nothing else is right in it. So it's like, that's all we've got. I think some of it maybe. Maybe the strings ended up on the bonus CD with Suburban Light, actually. I think mm. as a separate track. But yeah, we never got the song recorded with the strings, but it's a nice version on Minor Tour, I think. So. I think Minotaur, yeah, considering it's just a mini album and it's sort of more or less outtakes from Bonfires on the Heath, it really, I think it really holds up. I think it's great. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of outtakes from the previous album, actually, as well. Oh, right. From the Nashville Sessions, uh, maybe five or six songs, I think, that haven't been released. Mm. And I can't even remember what they are now, but we've got them on a hard drive somewhere that we can't access because it's not compatible with any modern computers. I think. Oh, no. <laughs> got to get some cables before it disintegrates and uh, try and get those songs off it yeah. <laughs> yeah it was quite a prolific time but. yeah well, that's so funny because i mean 2007 isn't that long ago but technology moves so fast it's kind of yeah it's hard to plug a classic ipod in these days isn't it you know just... yeah yeah i mean those, we, when we decided to mix it in london we had to get it all sent over in a big hard drive right and um, now you could just we transfer the files over quite easily i suspect that like but so moving on to 2017, music for the Age of Miracles. Yes, this is a it's a beautiful album. It it sounds so lush. I think the atmosphere of it is amazing. The arrangements are so beautiful. Yeah, were you consciously trying to? I don't know what what was the, what's the story behind it. <laughs> well, I, I guess unlike most of our albums, we've always had the intention of recording a very bare bones album, just the three of us trying to catch that live sound. And we never do it. We always end up with strings and what have you. But this one, I think, was consciously considered as a an opportunity to do some arrangements because we had Ant in the band at that point. Mm. So he kind of... Al had been bumped into him, I think, and he's an old university friend. And uh, he'd become a proficient Santur player, more than proficient, um, in the intervening years. And so we just did a couple of recordings with him before... We started the album. We did a song. We decided to do a gig in London. We did one in Denmark first, actually. So we'd only been on hiatus a few years at this point, I think. And then we got the invitation to play a gig in Denmark by some friends that we've made over the years. So we thought, why not? Let's do it. It was their anniversary of their festival, I think. And we played at one of the early ones. So, And that was just the three of us. And that was a real pleasure to play. So we thought, OK, maybe we could do more. And then we did one in London and they wanted to do a six, seven inch single, split single of the two bands playing. So we recorded On a Summer Trail, mm. which I absolutely love. I think it's one of our best, best songs, I think. It came out really well. And that's the first thing we did with Ant. And he's 
mainly just doing backing vocals on that one, I think. I can't remember what else, but... Um, and then Merge were doing an anniversary box set of seven-inch singles, so we recorded a single for that as well with Ant using the Santa on Falling Asleep. Uh, and sounded magical, I thought, so, yeah. And then we decided to just start working, working on an album. And, yeah, he played a big part in that with the arrangements and kind of even the structures of some of the songs. Yeah. It was an interesting time, actually. Yeah, I don't think we quite had time to mix it as well as we could have done, ultimately, because there was so much time spent recording all the extra parts. So we were, by the time it came to mixing, we were just like, let's get it done. Mm. But, like, um, but it was hard to mix because there was so much going on. By the time we finished it, we couldn't. Al and I couldn't even listen to any music for about two months afterwards. I don't think it was just. Uh, we, we, yeah, we were kind of exhausted from that, that session, um, and we had no idea if what we'd done was any good either. We were messaging each other, "Is like, is this good enough to release?" And I'm like, "I don't think it is, but I'm not sure." So, um, but it turns out it was. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's got some wonderful songs in it. Oh yeah. So. I love All Alone, which is on the bonus tracks. Yeah, it's the um, spoken word one with Lupe singing. With Lupe singing, yeah, yeah. which is really nice, isn't it? So. Do you have a favourite track on on this album? I think The Age of Miracles is a beautiful song, possibly my favourite Cleontel song of all. I think. There's a, a rough mix of this with just the three of us playing on it before we've added any of the arrangements. And for me, I think that's the the one I like to listen to more. Mm. I think it's stripped down like that. I don't know. We play really well together on that one. So. Yeah, you, you and Alistair have often talked about wanting to capture something of the, the way the band sounds live or wanting to do something more stripped back. You mentioned you're going to do a live album. Hopefully, yeah. Do you think you would the next studio one, if you can think that that far ahead, would would, would possibly go back to that stripped back sound? We have talked about it, mm. yeah, but we do talk about this before every album. So, yeah. but I think we'd like to go. So there was a studio where the Snap Studios where the um, strings were recorded. So we thought if we got really rehearsed with a set of songs, we could just go in, record it very quickly live. It's a really good studio, so. Maybe we'll give that a go, mm. try and capture that live sound. I think we need a different studio to do it. I think Brian's, they sound like studio records when they come out. They don't sound like live records, so just a different quality to them. So, But it would be lovely to do because I think that there's a lot of dynamics at play when we play live and um, that seems to get lost a little bit on the records. So, um, yeah. yeah. I think you sound amazing live as well. Just, you know, that London gig, Alistair's voice is so good live as well. Mm. You know, obviously not saying that it isn't in the studio, but the way it sits on top of everything and you can hear every word as well. Yeah. I think the way the three of us work live just brings out something different. And it's, um, it doesn't feel like three people mm. playing. Sometimes it sounds like more. It's, it was really nice to listen back to the recordings of the show that we recorded in 
Portland on the last tour. So that's the one that's going to potentially come out as a live album. Is it? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it was just disastrous at first because we were um, Mark had set his drum kit up the wrong way round or something, so he just stopped playing in the middle of the first song and and didn't play at all in the second song while he was fi- fixing his kit. So it was a rather inauspicious start. So we've been playing really well on this tour. And um, thought, well, we've got the opportunity to capture this now. And then obviously <laughs> it all went wrong. But it, it, luckily it was a long enough set for us to be able to make a nice album out of it because we, we got ourselves together after a while. Right. Yeah. I thought you were going to fix it in post and put some MIDI drums on. For some <laughs> it's an option. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And that brings us up to the new album, I Am Not There Anymore. And you mentioned last time we spoke that you had a favourite song on this one, but we never got to find out what it was. Did I? Yeah, I don't know if it's the same anymore, actually. I'm still choosing my favourite song, but I, I, at the time it was probably Hey Siobhan, I think. Mm. Which, yeah, didn't seem to get mentioned much by anyone when we were talking about potential singles. or um, I thought it deserved a shout-out, really. But, um, yeah. But now I'm, Fables is my favourite song on the album, probably. Hey, Siobhan's got fantastic lyrics as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's brilliant. The moon impossibly clear, I think, is beautiful. Mm. Mm. It's got my favourite bass moment of the album oh, yeah? as well. So, um, yeah. What's that? Can you describe it? No, I can't describe it's beyond it. beyond words. Can you describe bass? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's interesting listening to the, the new album after having gone through all these, because it does really stand out, I think, now. I, I do think it... I do think it is quite different in lots of ways. There's a sort of... Whereas Age of Miracles has got this real lush quality, there's a kind of a stark quality to the new album somehow. Yeah. It, it's kind of darker, maybe sadder. And it feels like Alistair's lyrics, while it isn't clear all the time what he's singing about, there's this urgency to them almost that you... I don't know. If that, does that make sense to you? Mm, yeah, I think it's quite an intense listen. Mm. Um, I think the string arrangements have a lot to do with the way the, the album kind of feels as well, because it's the first one we've done the string arrangements ourselves, or Al did the majority of it, and um, and they're not easy listening strings, which I think have been the tendency for people writing for us to to make us make us sound lush, and uh, that's not the case on this record. They're quite challenging to listen to and take the songs in a different way than previously they would have gone I think so um, and for the better definitely What's your relationship like with the album now? I mean you finished it a long time ago but do, can you do you listen to it? Do you ever listen to the records for pleasure or was it? it normally I don't um, you're usually so sick of a record after you finish mixing it you don't want to hear it for, and I think like for The Violet Hour for example I didn't listen to it until after we'd done a couple more albums I think and then I went back to listen to it and I thought oh I, I can listen to this now and I enjoy it now but um, there's always a period for the previous albums at least where you just don't want to hear it again um, uh, but this one was different and uh, we finished last summer with the mixes um, and I had it on my phone and I was listening to it on the allotment while I was digging and stuff a lot and just 
I found myself just really engrossed in it and really enjoying it actually. And um, and then after we'd finished, we signed off the mixes. I just carried on listening to it, and I I do every now and then put it on still now. So. Um, and the reaction seems to have been good. We've had the there was a Mojo review recently, wasn't there? Yeah, nice Mojo one, great one in Uncut. Hopefully more to come. Al's been doing a lot of interviews, so we should see some good press, I think, for this one. So, yeah, so all going well so far. It must be very um, gratifying when journalists really key into what's going on in the album. Yeah. Because both of those reviews are very sensitively written, I thought. It's especially gratifying when it's journalists from the UK because like we finally seem to have been accepted now yeah. here um, by not just by the journalists but by the record buying public as well a little bit more so it was really nice to play that show in October whenever we played it and it sold out so quickly it was like well um, really enthusiastic crowd so something something changed between us recording our last album in the first period, the bonfires, and coming back seven or eight years later, something had definitely shifted. Yeah. And and then when we released the last record, it got a lot of really great press in this country and radio play and stuff. So, um, and the same seems to be happening with the new one. So, it's interesting. I don't know why we're more acceptable now than we were before. But. Well, I think I think music listeners in general are just less polarised now maybe they're not in tribes in the way they were in the 90s or noughties I think younger listeners in particular are very open minded I mean it's partly because of just streaming you listen to all music any time you know so there's no real difference between this genre or that genre it's all kind of music you listen to and stuff it's amazing anyone finds their way to us at all with the amount of music available on streaming now, <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Cleontel podcast. In next week's episode, I'll be speaking to the American writer, Audrey Golden, who is a huge fan of the band, so it's a really, really interesting chat. The Cleontel podcast was produced, edited and mixed by me, with help from Johnny White and Dave Collingwood. If you want to get in touch, you can find me at Robin Allender on social media. My website is robinallender.com. You can also check out Johnny White's music and comedy at johnnywhitereallyreally.bandcamp.com. And also please check out Dave Collingwood's website, collingwoodsymbols.com. Dave is a symbol maker, so if you're a drummer and are interested in getting hold of some handmade symbols made by a master craftsman, then please check it out. See you next week. Mm -hmm.